Well, let me begin here. If I were to ask you the question, what is false religion, what would you say? If you said, well, false religion is anything that is not true religion or biblical Christianity, I would say that's a good answer. And then I would add that this broad category of false religion comes in tons of flavors and shapes and sizes and variants, some of which, let's be honest, seem quite normal and thus very easy to embrace. For example, maybe they have a holy book, and uh, cults use the Bible, right? Um, You have other holy books that other religions would subscribe to. Uh, You have doctrines and covenants and pearl of great price, Mormon stuff. You have the Watchtower translation of the Bible. You have the Quran. Tons of religions have their holy books, and so, yeah, holy book, that makes sense. And then they have their holy practices. Hey, they pray. They worship. They do what religious people seem like they would do. So they got the holy practices. And then the holy places as well. Churches, sometimes they're called, or synagogues, or mosques, or you need to go to Mecca. They have their holy places. And they have their holy people. A priest, an imam, an elder, a pastor, all sorts of religious positions. And all of that holy stuff, at least from a surface look, a veneer kind of approach, does make it somewhat palatable, right? Other religions, I don't know how to put it, I'll put it this way, are a bit more focused. They say, for instance, we think humans came from aliens. Isn't that what Scientology teaches? Yes, okay, so it's confirmed. Uh, Or they might say something like, uh, God only wants to redeem a certain skin, uh, skin color. Now, that sounds crazy, right? But to those who've fallen prey to those religions, it's probably apparently not so crazy. Then there are others who play the, well, we are just not a religion card. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like atheists would say that, we're not a religion, or New Age might say that. But... The reality is they have their creeds, they have their dogmas, they have their rituals and their practices just like every other religion. Everybody is religious in that sense. And then you have others who claim they have rediscovered the truth of Christianity and what the Bible really means, especially with those points that seem to be so countercultural or are just hard to receive in any age. That would be uh, movements called the way of Jesus or um, progressive Christianity. Now, my question for you is, how would you know if you're fallen prey to a false religion? Or how would you counsel a friend who maybe has fallen prey to a false religion or is falling prey to a false religion? What would you say? What do you need to do? Do you need to become experts on the ever-growing numbers of religions swirling about? That'd be a pretty uh, tedious task. Do you you need to know at least, I don't know, the top 10 or 20 or 5? And the answer is no. 
What I think we need to know would be the hallmarks of false religion. And that's what we're going to see this morning, the hallmarks of false religion. And we're going to see it not from a sterile theological textbook in sort of a propositional fashion. Rather, we're going to see this in a live and dynamic encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees and scribes and then the ensuing conversation in the aftermath. And so here's where we're going this morning. I want to preach to you on four hallmarks of false religion and then parentheses, and legalism, because legalism very much has something to do with this. All right? So, hallmark number one. False religion slyly attacks the authority of Scripture. Operative word there, slyly. Or you might say, subtly. You see, false religion mostly, not exclusively, but but mostly doesn't come along and say, this Bible is just flat out wrong, right? Rather, um, people will, like Jehovah's Witnesses will say, oh, we, we, we respect the Bible. We just have our own translation, but we respect it. LDS, they will say, oh, we, we believe the Bible is great, and we got some other books too, but it, it's good. Even, even uh, the Muslim faith would say, hey, we have a respect for the Bible, at least the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Modern-day Judaism, same, right? Even progressive Christianity, progressive Christians would say, we, we have great respect for the Bible. Yes, it was man doing his best to describe what they think God was like, and they were really wrong a lot in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, we have a great respect for this book. See, it's a sly attack against the authority of Scripture. Perhaps that's what makes it all the more dangerous, right? Because they are feigning respect for the authority of God's word while really undercutting it. Now, we look at verse 1. It's the context. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So they, they're, they're in Jerusalem, and they come from the south. They're going up north to kind of more the rural area. And most commentators say that uh, this expression, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus, would be alluding to at least a pseudo-semi, even full-bore official delegation sent to shake out what's going on with this man named Jesus. Well, verse 2, I think I got my glasses off. That's what happens when you get old. So in verse 2, they have a question. Here's their question, this delegation wanting to shake out Jesus. They say, hey, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, us and others? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, here's how they attack biblical authority. This is what I'm going to show you from this text. By making their interpretations, and specifically their applications of Scripture as authoritative as Scripture itself. Let me repeat that. They undermine, attack biblical authority slightly by making their interpretations and applications specifically as authoritative as Scripture. So so let's look at this. Now, by the way, there's other ways that people can attack the authority of God's Word for sure, but I'm just showing you how they did it here. Okay? This is what they go on to say. He, um, why, okay, 
Now, I need to stop there for a second because I think, I think this is, this is um, yeah. They attack Scripture by, as I say, making their interpret, interpretations and applications authoritative to Scripture itself. So here's what they did. Here's what they would do. They would, um, they would take a Scripture from the Old Testament in this case, there were some verses that talked about Aaron and his sons who were part of the Aaronic priesthood, that there was this pretty meticulous ritual that they would have to ceremonially cleanse. It had nothing to do with germs, right? They would have to ceremonially cleanse themselves before they went into the temple to do the temple ritual, okay? So they took that truth in Exodus and other places in the Pentateuch, and then they un biblically applied it to the average Jewish Joe or Jane in kind of washings they would have to do. And they expound it through every era more and more on that in a series of oral traditions that became codified or codified in written form in something called the Mishnah. You ever heard of the Mishnah? There are 4,000 words in the Mishnah on how exactly you were to wash your hands before a meal. They would debate, do I wash my hands to my wrist or to my elbow or just to the middle of my forearm? How much water should I use? What kind of water? I mean, on and on and on and on. They were making their unbiblical interpretations of Scripture like Scripture itself. Does that make sense? And you got to admit, here's the thing. That stuff can kind of actually seem kind of holy from a distance, right? Can't it? They can't eat meat on Fridays? And their priests can't marry? Ooh. Oh. They must be really holy. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yet, the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact... And I had a friend come to faith out of Roman Catholicism through this verse because I shared it with him way back in South Bend, Indiana, about 15, 20 years ago, where it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit says expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Teaching, what does it, what does it say? By devoting themselves, rather, to deceitful spirits, and the teachings or doctrines of demons who, through the insincerity of liars, have their consciences seared, and this is what they do, who forbid marriage, do you see that? And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And yet, all that stuff that different religions do, whether they cover themselves big time or what, it, 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 from a distance, doesn't it look holy? This has got to be of God. But Jesus is challenging us to say, well, is it really? The other thing is these extra biblical interpretations held with the same authority of Scripture create a metric or a framework by which others are judged. Right? I mean, that's the deal here. These scribes and Pharisees, these elders in the Jewish church are looking at these disciples. They're not washing like others. And they deduct them, well, Jesus, you're their leader. You're apparently not 
teaching them how to wash properly, you are in the wrong. Now, this is where I got sidetracked because I knew I wanted to come to this, and here I'm going to come to this. Um, We have to be careful that this mentality does not slip into the church under what is called legalism. Legalism is not of God. Now, I want to say really quickly, people use the word legalism way too often and way too frequently and and way too much, okay? So, for instance, having a high view of the Bible, is that legalism? No. Is wanting to apply the Bible to your life legalism? It's talking about effort and discipline and obedience. Is that legalism? No. So let's talk about legalism. Legalism rears its ugly head on two levels. Number one in the area of sanctification, number one in the area of justification, number two in the area of sanctification. Let me, let me describe. Legalism in the area of justification or simply being saved, to put it commonly, says, you know how you can get right with God? If you just keep the law or the extra biblical additions of the law that we make. It doesn't work that way. The scripture says from front to end, by the works of the law, Romans 3.20, no flesh will ever be justified or saved in God's sight. Now, you may be clear that you're justified by faith, but the second area legalism can rear its ugly head is an area of sanctification. I think there are Christians sometimes who get caught in this. In other words, in the Christian life and Christian growth. And that is legalism when you begin subtly to replace God's standards with your own. Or you replace reliance on the Spirit of God with reliance on the strength of your flesh. Of course, nobody says they're doing that, but that's what happens. Paul writes to the church of Galatia, chapter 3. He says, wait, did you receive the Spirit through the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? And the answer is, well, no, we heard the gospel. We received Jesus. We were saved by faith and grace alone and all that. He says, okay, then, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you will be perfected by the flesh. Who has bewitched you? And sometimes people get bewitched in the area of sanctification, the Christian life. And they just live under guilt because they're never performing well enough to these standards. It's it's very subtle, though, isn't this thing? Because it usually has pretty good intentions, doesn't it? I want to please God. I want to walk in holiness and all that. I was listening to a guy named Richard Caldwell. He's the one that hosted a conference that all the pastors attended a year ago about this same time. And he made two specific applications where legalism just might be rearing its ugly head in his local church. And I'm just going to give what he shared. And maybe there's other ways here. He says, first, in the area of school. Schooling. There's a big homeschooling movement there, and that can be a really good thing. Um, but what happens, and, and, and he acknowledges that, for instance, uh, public schools have their own dangers, right, of indoctrinating, I mean, trying to indoctrinate our kids in a lot of different things. But not everybody can send their kid to something besides public school. And the reality is, every form of schooling has its strengths and weaknesses to some extent or another, right? He says, though, when people get really passionate about homeschooling, 
they then can say, they can twist some scriptures out of context. Deuteronomy 6 says, you know, whether you walk by the way or where you're laying down, teach your children. See, you're supposed to be their teacher all the time. It's sinful to have anyone else teach them, which is just eisegesis. And that's what the Bible is teaching. And then they begin to say, you're not honoring God if you're not doing what we say you should do, homeschool your kids. It can rear its head, it can. Or how about this? It can rear its head through uh, beginning to almost think, you won't say it, but people begin to think this, that sanctification, growth in God, is measured by attendance to a church calendar. So under our calendar, prayer meeting, 9 a.m., check! Sunday school, 9.30 a.m., check. Worship service, 11 a.m., check. Whatever we're doing Wednesday night, I know we're always changing, but we got a little pattern here now, check. By the way, that was great, the story of God the other night. We, we had so many people here for that, and I want you to be here for that. But the problem is those are means to sanctification, not the marks of sanctification, and when you just use external metrics like that, listen, these cats right here, these Pharisees and scribes, I'm sure they checked off everything, right? They were there for it all. And yet their heart was far from God. Again, this, this, this does begin, this does have good intentions behind it. It really does. It really, really does. But it can create a facade of false holiness while categorizing people as good or bad in or out. And that's sort of what these dudes were doing, right? So two ditches. Um, let me just close this addendum in the middle of the message. Um, two ditches to avoid with legalism. One is calling a high view of Scripture legalism. That's not. We ought to have a high view of Scripture, right? But the other is making your interpretations as authoritative as Scripture itself, specifically your applications, and then judging people by them. You all with me? Really? Okay, now we're going to get back to the text. Verse 3. Jesus answered them, only he doesn't really answer them. He will later. He answers them with a counterpunch of his own. Look at what he says. He answered, and why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? I think he's a little fired up here. What's interesting, he doesn't say, well... You know, we were on a, they were on a long hike, and there's no water in these parts up here, and so that's why they didn't wash. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I don't know why. Maybe they just forgot an innocent mistake. He doesn't say even, well, why do you ask that question? That's a good question. Thank you for asking. He doesn't do that. No, he begins to tape up his hands, and he throws a right. And basically what he is saying here is the issue, my friends, is not my disciples breaking your puny little paltry traditions. The issue is you breaking the commandment of God because of your puny paltry little traditions. He goes on to specify how they were breaking the actual commandment of God in keeping their holy applications. Look at what he says, verse five, verse four. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Where's that from? In the Bible, it's the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. And then he goes on to say, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's some strong stuff there, right? But you know, in Exodus chapter 21, under the old covenant, verses 15 and 17, Exodus 21, 
if a child either cursed their parent or struck their parent, they could receive the death penalty. So, button up, kids. No, there's no record of that ever happening, okay? But, but it's pretty serious stuff, right? And here, here's the point. Here's the point. God is really big on us honoring our father and mother, right? He's really big on it. I don't think, I think in, 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 the, in America, modern-day America, we don't have, we don't adhere to this principle as, as, many, as much as people sometimes in other cultures. What does it look like to honor your father and mother? Well, as a, as a child, it means you're going to obey them. And obeying them isn't just doing what they say. When they say to do it, it's doing it sweetly. What does it mean to honor your parents when they get older? It means, I think, to make sure they're taken care of. If they took care of us so well when we were kids, then at least we can help out and take care of them when they can no longer care for themselves. But here's the rub. These holy scribes and Pharisees, these elders, they came up with a way not to discharge that responsibility to their parents in their elder age. Look at what he says. God commanded, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must be surely died. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Now, let me explain. Mark helps us with the, the uh, cognate passage, uh, parallel passage. There's a, there was a practice called Corbin. You ever heard that word? And Corbin was a way of saying dedicated to God. And what people would do so they wouldn't have to help out their parents is if they, they could take some money they had or some possession that they could possibly sell for money and they could say, Corbin, this is dedicated to God. So then if their parent came along and said, hey, we're, we're struggling, we're on a fixed income, we need a new roof, or, or we can't take care of ourselves, can you help us out in some way? Ma, Dad, I would like to, but you know, I dedicated this money to God already that, that I would give to you, but I can't. I'm holding on to it for the right time to give to God. Now, Jesus calls that ploy just for what it is, right? A sinful, carnal, wicked ruse. It's not really loving God or loving your parents. He says, verse 6b, so for the sake of your what? What's the word there? Not all tradition is bad. Some is really bad. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What have they made void? The part about honoring your mother and father. Part about caring for them. And then he calls them, verse 7, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. You seem, in other words, a hypocrite would be somebody who seems like they love God. And seems like they're trying to be really holy, but they are the farthest thing from that. And he goes on to quote, quote Isaiah 29, verse 13. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments, there it is, of men. They had the right words, perhaps, but the wrong actions, right? Because of their heart. Hold on to that heart. Because of their heart. They were not truly worshiping God. They're actually worshiping self. So, I, I, long point here, but I just want to really hammer it. False religion 
slyly undermines the authority of God's Scripture by making its applications as authoritative as Scripture and leading people away from <laughs> obedience to Scripture. And I think legalism claims to honor Scripture, but it actually invalidates it. Now, running on, we're going to the second hallmark. Really, the second one's not so much a hallmark, it's a consequence of false religion, but it's a hallmark too. Second of all, false religion tragically leads to judgment. We're going to jump down to verse 12 before we hit 10 quickly in just a moment. The disciples came to him and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And this is kind of funny if you ask me, because the Pharisees think they're, or the disciples rather think they're cluing in Jesus, but they're the ones that are clueless, right? Like, I think he sort of offended, was intending to offend them, and sometimes there is a time to offend somebody who is holding on to stuff that is disloyal to God and, and hurtful to people. And so he's trying to do that. What does he say? Verse 13. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up, pulled up by the roots. Does that make you think of anything that Jesus taught one or two chapters ago? Remember wheat and tares, right? They're going to grow. False religion flourishes right now, but at the end of the age, the real deal is going to be separated from the fakes. In other words, you have judgment coming your way. There's heaven there's a heaven to be gained and the hell to be avoided because judgment is coming. Other thing Jesus says in answering that is, let them, verse 14, alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Another reference, by the way, to judgment. But in the ancient world, just like in certain third world countries today, blindness is sadly not an uncommon occurrence. And so it's a common practice then for a blind person perhaps to, to, to hire the services of a sighted person to guide them at least doing business in the market and whatnot. How silly it would be is the point for a blind person to hire a blind guide. And yet these blind men are leading people to judgment with them. So let me wrap up this second point. No matter how holy a person or religion might seem if they reject biblical authority, and then specifically the last two hallmarks. They and their followers do await eternal judgment. Now, I, I, I understand. That's not really a popular thing to say, right? Like, well, I, I, how could you say that as a pastor? How could you say that as a religious leader? I mean, that doesn't sound very loving. But we don't believe that in any other area of life. We actually think in other areas of life that if somebody is doing something that will lead people to harm that is not truthful, that the loving thing to do is actually say, no, that's not right. For example, let's say a guy is riddled with cancer. And he goes to see a doctor. And the doctor says, you don't have cancer. You just got a bad rash and indigestion. And somebody says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not true. He's actually got, that's a bad diagnosis. What would you think somebody would say, that's not right to call out as bad diagnosis. All diagnoses lead to the same place. All diagnoses are right. What would you think about that? Evil. Or how about somebody, a bridge architect, and she says this in, in detailed drawing of a bridge. But in review, it finds out she's got her load tolerances all wrong. And the reviewer says, hey, within five years, during the winter when it's cold, during rush hour, 
boom, that bridge is going to give way to the river below. How could you say that? Who's, all low tolerances lead to a safe bridge. Right? No, did you see the point? Like, in this area, most of all, there is right and wrong. False religion tragically leads to judgment. Now, third of all, false religion totally misses the source of man's problem. We go back up to verse 10, and Jesus is going to finally answer the question of verse 2. Hey, why don't they wash like they're supposed to in our mind? And you might ask, well, why didn't Jesus answer the question then? And I think this is what's going on. You ever been in a group of people, maybe the conversation moves to spiritual things or, or some issue out there, and that person asks a question. But you know they're not really asking the question because they're in search of truth, right? They, they think they got you. They got you with that question. And by the way, you are under no obligation to answer that question. Sometimes when people do that, I will do what Jesus did. I will bring another, I'll bring my own question. I'll counterpunch. But here, because he knows that the Pharisees want to lead people astray, Jesus is going to actually answer the question with them. So I think the scribes and Pharisees are no longer there. He kind of calls the people to himself, and he says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, washed hands or not. Rather, it's what comes out of the mouth. This does what? What does that do? That defiles a person. Peter, being Peter, always got to ask a question. He then jumps on that in verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. What does Jesus say? Are you also still without understanding? Peter is getting a, a mild rebuke from Jesus. But he, he's not getting condemned like the scribes and Pharisees for rejecting him. But he, he is being mildly rebuked. And I think the, the sense of the rebuke is, hey, Peter, would you take some time to really reflect on the source of defilement? So I want to take a minute or two for us to really reflect on the source of defilement that is man's problem. I would ask you this. Why do you think people are the way they are? Why do you think the world is the way it is? One commentator pointed out several reasons, several reasons the world would, uh, ways that the world would answer that question. Some people say there is no problem. The only problem is you religious people trying to impose your morals on others, your sense of right and wrong. That's the problem. That went away, there would be no problems. You don't need to scratch on that too long to see how illogical and unsustainable that is. A world where there wouldn't be standards, right or wrongs, would be a society of absolute anarchy. And as I was thinking about that, even anarchists have their own rules. Like if you don't fall in line with the anarchy, they'll, they'll punch you in the face. They want you to hold their standard. Everybody's trying to impose their right and wrongs. It's just true. This is kind of funny to me. I saw a little uh, meme uh, around Thanksgiving time put out by PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I think we ought to be ethical with animals for sure, but they have much more in mind than that, right? Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a bunch of turkeys all dressed up around a Thanksgiving table and a human being on a platter uh, in like the shape of a baked turkey. And the meme said something like, if turkeys don't do it, why don't we? And that's because they don't have the ability to do that. Uh, but for a lot of other reasons. But it's kind of funny to me. But the, what are they trying to do? Impose 
Peter's trying to impose her standards, or peta. Have you ever noticed that the strongest voices against imposing your morals on them sometimes try to impose their morals on you with the shrillest voices? So that, that, that's not true, that assertion. Now, most people, because of common grace, have enough common sense to acknowledge, yeah, I think the world's a little messed up, a little broken. I mean, just take a history class, right? Look at our own hearts. However, they still have a very superficial diagnosis. Some would say, yep, there's a problem, but the problem is the human brain. That if with enough breakthroughs in psychiatry and psychology, boom, we can take care of all the brokenness. Now, of course, there is a modicum of truth in that, right? Our our brains can be broken just like anything else, but is that what Jesus says is the ultimate source? No. Other people say the problem is environment. It's the old uh, nurture before nature. But you know what blows that up? Truth. They've been studies of twins who grew up in the exact same scenario and context to a very divergent lifestyles in significant categories. So that kind of blows that up. Others say, here's the problem, another, another external thing. The problem is inequality. That if we just had more equality in wealth and education and opportunity, if we took care of that, then all our problems would go away. Well, it doesn't take a long look at the history of redistribution, a.k.a. socialism, to see that usually it's just the redistribution of, of sins, different st- kinds of sins by different people. Now, does it mean we should care about, not mean we shouldn't care about equality? We should care about equality. And, and by the way, nurturing does have something to say about somebody's trajectory, of course, right? There's elements in truth and all that, but again, those are just superficial diagnoses. Then there's the religious one, overtly religious one. There are people who say, yes, 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 we're, we're broken inside. But if we just had some right instruction with some good morals, whatever flavor it might be, with the help of God, whatever you want to think of him, her, Zize, that, well, however you want to conceive God, with the help of a supreme being and some good teaching, you can be a better person. Now, the problem with all of these diagnoses is they are either external and or very superficial. Jesus dials in on the heart or source of man's problem. Let's read on. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth... Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. You guys know what that's about, right? A couple times a day, once hopefully. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. According to Jesus, what's the source of our problem? Our heart, our hearts, our hearts. That's the source of our problems. That's why Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he lists seven kinds of sin. This is not an all-inclusive list, a suggestive list, a partial list of sins that emanate from the source of sin, our heart. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. So much for the saying that says, as long as I don't actually do it, I'm I'm cool. Not according to Jesus. Now, I know sometimes people would then say, well, what about this thing called temptation? What makes a thought 
sin on me. You ever wonder that? You get a bad thought, what do you do with it? You say, well, I'm not doing it, so it's okay. I can, I can feast on it in my mind. Or at least nobody knows. Or when you get a bad thought, are you like, oh, Lord, please help me. This, this, you don't want this for me. This is not good. This is not healthy, et cetera, et cetera. How do you respond to those thoughts that come from your fallen heart? He goes on to say, murder. And somebody says, well, glad I've never done that. So I must not have that in my heart. What did Jesus say about that? What did Jesus say? You got anger in your heart, you've killed somebody. You say, well, I used to be angry at somebody. I used to hate somebody, but I don't anymore. Okay, that's cool. But by God's standard, how many times do you have to murder to be a murderer? How many times do you have to hate to be a murderer, therefore? So murders. And the same thing with adultery here. He goes on to say, adultery flows out of our heart. You know what Jesus said about that. Sexual immorality, interesting word there, word porneia. Junk drawer word for all kinds of sexual immorality, okay? Which isn't just um, adultery, sex with somebody that uh, you're married and somebody else outside of your marriage or, or two people unmarried sleeping together. It includes that, but also includes not just heterosexual sin, but homosexual sin, sin that's called both unnatural and natural in Romans 1. All of that, all of that comes from the heart. He says all that comes from the heart. Theft, false witness, slander, those are verbal sins, what we say. And by the way, we are really good at discerning the evil of other people's words. How could you say that to me? What's the state of your heart towards me? What's going on? Now, we say something like that? Come on, I was just joking. Uh, that, that, that was out of character for me. I didn't really mean it. Here's the point. All of that is sourced in our heart, right? And this is kind of a crass illustration, but um, an unwashed gas station toilet at the end of a busy weekend is no match for the filth of the unregenerate human heart. So no wonder Paul can write, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes all of us. No wonder the psalmist can say that we were shaped in iniquity, in sin, our mothers conceived us. We go astray as soon as we be born, speaking lies. Left to their own devices, people absolutely hate this. People are willing to concede, maybe I'm broken. Okay, I'll say that. Maybe I've made a few mistakes. Okay, fine, I'm not perfect, but who is? But we don't like the idea that I am a sinner who basically have given God the middle finger in my rebellion. Tragically, for that reason, false religion might misdiagnosis the source of man's problem, which is what? His heart. Fourth and finally, it tragically leads to rejecting something else. False religion sadly rejects the only solution to man's problem. You see, people who don't see themselves as a sinner won't want to see Jesus as a savior, right? That's why Jesus said he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Now, it's, it don't, 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 don't get this twisted. It's not that lost people can't have a respect for Jesus, right? We know, we, we know non-Christian people can. Oh, they, can, they say, I believe he existed, or, hey, I think he is a great example, a great moral teacher. Gandhi said that. They might even say he's part of the salvation package. They might acknowledge that. But when it comes to accepting what Jesus said for himself, that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, that we're saved by him and him alone, they reject that. 
And however they might dress that up in platitudes of religiosity and pithy quotes and cherry-picked verses and all the rest, it is full-bore rejection from the heart. You see, Jesus broke every oral tradition the Pharisees put up. He touched menstruating women. He touched lepers. You don't do that. He touched dead people. You're not supposed to do that. Read the Mishnah. But all along, he perfectly kept God's law in our place. He lived a life of perfect obedience in place of our disobedience. And then, in his mercy, he not only touched sinners, he died for them. And he died for us in order to pay the price for our rebellion against God from our heart. The Pharisees in this text come up from Jerusalem to reject Jesus. We just, read, we just went through that. But it won't be much longer when Jesus will go down to Jerusalem. And why is he going to go down to Jerusalem? Not just to be rejected by the religious leaders and others, but to be crucified by them. Why was Jesus crucified in the end? God was the one behind it all setting forth the Savior. And Jesus proved that he paid the penalty for our sin when he defeated the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death and rising victoriously from the grave. So I can give you an illustration of the difference between true religion, the gospel, and false religion. There's like 32 flavors at Baskin-Robbins, and there are 32,000 religions. But there's really only two at the end of the day, grace or works. You see, almost every religion, they might have a different name for God, as I said before, and they might have a different name for what ails man. We're just not evolved enough. We haven't advanced enough. We're not enlightened. But almost every religion, you look at it, they really do say that something's got to change with man before he can get to God or become God or whatever it is they believe, right? And so there's this ladder that you got to climb. Islam, the five pillars of faith. Hinduism, 88,000 reincarnations, right? Roman Catholicism, that was my religious background. You have to earn grace. And you go on and on. You got to climb up this ladder. Every one of them, it's, it's works. It comes in all different flavors and shapes and forms, but that's at the end of the day what it is. You got to work your way. But Christianity gives the worst diagnosis and the best and only solution. In Christianity, we call God holy because he is. And we call man sinful because we are. That's what Jesus is teaching here. But the beautiful thing is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That Jesus is God incarnate, the second person trinity who came down the ladder. He came to earth for us as a man yet still God to fulfill the law's demands by living the perfect life in our place and then dying in our place as a penalty for our sin and rising again. So you can continue to climb, climb your ladder, but at the end of the age, you will be pushed down. Or you can say, thank you, God, for Jesus coming down, and as we're by faith, jump on his back. 
and be saved by grace alone, grace alone, unmerited favor alone. So are you trusting in fig leaves or are you trusting in your works? Because sometimes we think religious people, uh, they're, really, they're really pursuing God. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. They're actually hiding in fig leaves. They're actually hiding. Religion is hiding from God. Do you realize that? Now, not, sometimes people in religion are actually pursuing God for sure. How would you know? Answer, how do they respond to this message? Right? That I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, God loved me and gave his son to pay the judgment, who rose again, and if I receive him, I'm forgiven and enter into an eternal, eternal, transforming, soul-satisfying relationship with him. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? The gospel is not good advice on what you should do. The gospel is good advice on what God has done for all who will believe. And in the mystery of conversion, in the fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you get a new heart in this whole thing. You get new, remember we talked about this, he's talking about the heart. Not that when you get a new heart as a Christian, you, you, you no longer have evil thoughts and all that. In a sense, you have two hearts. You have an old sin nature until glorification. But you need a new heart to receive Christ. And so I end with this quote from Sean O'Donnell. Through the Holy Spirit, we need Jesus to give us broken and contrite hearts. I remember when that happened in the Marine Corps, the things that I was doing, I started feeling convicted about. That wasn't just me having some kind of religious psyche. That was the Holy Spirit showing me I was sinful. It's a kindness when he does that to you. If he's doing that to you, it's because he loves you and he's calling you to himself. Through the Holy Spirit, we get circumcised hearts, Romans 2.29, broken and contrite hearts, Psalm 51, verse 17, clean hearts, Hebrews 10.22, pure hearts, 1 Peter 1.22, new hearts, Ezekiel 36.26, sincere hearts, Ephesians 5, so that we might believe from the heart, Ephesians 3.17, and obey from the heart, Deuteronomy 11.13. The promise of Romans 10.9 holds for anyone here. It's this, that if you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. These Pharisees and these scribes, they refuse to, and untold millions of others, and judgment is what's coming. But untold millions of others have turned from their fig leaves and trusted in Jesus Christ alone and have been born again to a living, true, eternal, transforming hope through faith in Jesus Christ. And here, For the person who thinks they've done too much, that's a lie. That's a lie. There was a guy who was a murderer to Christians. That was the Apostle Paul. That's pretty bad, right? He executed Christians. And he's on the road to Damascus, and God stops him in his tracks and makes him alive. And he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And he will write later on in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. And he said, for this reason, he saved me as a pattern for everyone else who would believe. In other words, if, if God will forgive Paul, God will forgive you if you turn to Jesus Christ. So for anyone here who's never trusted Jesus, like, I'm not saying you haven't been through ritual and church stuff and all that. That was me. But truly in, embraced him. If that's you, you can do that right where you're at. If you want counsel from a Bible, I'll be back at the AV booth and I'd love to talk to you. And the other thing is for the brother or sister, who is a brother or sister in faith, but you become pretty legalistic in your view of sanctification, 
It has the appearance of promoting wisdom and self-made religion and severity and, 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 and uh, asceticism, as Paul says in Colossians 3, but it has no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's why you see sometimes, quote, some of the holiest people doing some of the most wicked things, right? Because that's all they were doing, self-made religion. And if you feel like you veered off the message of grace, you are a Christian, why don't you confess that to the Lord, right? Because he said a broken and contrite heart he would not despise.